Good evening. Welcome to two maddening hours of horror and fright. I am Sammy Terry. <laughs> Hey, what's up, gang? Welcome to another episode of Monster Kid Radio. I am Derek M. Cook, your host and producer, and this is episode 11 of the show that celebrates the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. We've been fortunate. We've been on a roll here on Monster Kid Radio from the very beginning. Almost every movie that we've covered, if not every movie that we've covered, is, well, a bona fide classic. I'm sure at some point we'll get to some of the movies that are a little bit more... Uh, rough, but not this week. This week, we are continuing our look at some Ray Harryhausen films. We're going to talk about Earth versus the Flying Saucers, and our guest this week is Scott Morris. Now, you might know Scott from the late Mail Order Zombie podcast, where he was known as Need a Nickname Scott. He was our news guy for several years on my old zombie movie podcast. He's also appeared on the B-Movie cast. He's also my... Co- well, we'll go through his credentials when we introduce him here on the show. Now, normally... We've been playing some sort of horror surf type music. This time we opened the show a little bit differently. We played some music from a classic horror host, Sammy Terry, who is the horror host that Scott grew up watching, just passed away. Now, this is the original Sammy Terry. His son would don the makeup and continue performing as Sammy Terry, but the original Sammy Terry just passed away yesterday. And we wanted to honor him here on Monster Kid Radio, because, come on, let's face it, without the horror host, a lot of us wouldn't even know what some of these movies are. A lot of us wouldn't even care. I would even go as far as saying that some podcasters are kind of doing the horror host thing themselves. And I know some horror hosts who podcast. So, you know, we're all kind of in the same boat here. We're all big fans. We're all finding ways to share the love that we have for these movies with our audience. And Sammy Terry was one of the best. So rest in peace. We'll get on with part one of our look at Earth vs. the Flying Saucer with Scott Morris right after this. The question is, where do horror hosts go when they have no other place to go? And the answer is the horror host graveyard. (laughs) Make sure you swing by the horror host graveyard and dig up the fetid, rotting remains of horror hosts from the past, present, and future. Man, you can go there and find information about all the great horror hosts, old and new. It's like the manifold of monster mayhem. Horror hosts from the past. You can find out about Zachary, Vampira, Goulardi. All kinds of great stuff. You've got people's music, you got movie clips, you got horror hosting clips. And you can find out about current horror hosts like Penny Dreadful, that's me, The Bone Jangler, Dr. Gang Green, and uh, Professor Anton Griffin, Carlos Borloff. They're all there waiting for you in the graveyard. Isn't that fun? <laughs> You know how to party there. Oh, I'm telling you, rock and roll, go blue, green, purple. I mean, and, oh, we get it on. What you should do is go to com. I like to visit the horrorhostgraveyard.com. Horrorhostgraveyard.com. So after feeling threatened by a spaceman in The Day the Earth Stood Still, Hugh Marlowe went to school, became a doctor himself, found a pretty doctor to marry, and started investigating flying saucers a few years later in Earth versus the Flying Saucers, which is a movie that my friend Scott picked to talk about on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing good, and not only did he pick out a girl, he pretty much picked up his uh, secretary. It's true. That's true. And uh, I forgot that these two characters were married uh, in the film, this has been a while since I've seen this one, and I had forgotten they were actually man and wife. I just remember them being, you know, a love interest kind of thing. So that was interesting for me. It was a nice kind of reminder, and a oh, that's something I don't remember seeing in these '50s sci-fi movies. So that was kind of cool. But before we talk about the movie, Scott, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's a pretty nice studio here. I love the posters <laughs> on the wall. So I think most people listening to Monster Kid Radio know who you are, but on the off chance they don't, could somebody tell me who I am? I don't know who I am. All right, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a shot. Scott's one of my nearest and dearest friends. Scott's a fellow podcaster. He puts together the Disney Indiana podcast every other week with his wonderful wife, Tracy. He's also the co-host of 1951 Down Place with me. Doesn't sound like me at all. (laughs) (laughs) 
have I have I hit the highlights here? Or have yeah. I, is, this, is this what's on page one of the resume, and you start getting into the nitty gritty after that? That's true. Yeah, we haven't gone into my you know overseas conquests and that kind of stuff. Oh, please do tell. <laughs> I've only been out of the country once, so <laughs> and it wasn't even overseas. If you can count Canada outside the country. <laughs> Well, Scott became a friend of mine through Mail Order Zombie. He reached out to me back in the day, and uh, then he launched his own show. So he's been doing this podcasting thing for a while. But you've been a fan of these kinds of movies that we talk about on Monster Kid Radio for a while now, right? We talked about this a little on an episode of uh, 1951 Down Place. I kind of grew up more of a sci-fi kid than a monster kid. I was always more of a fan of, of the sci-fi movies, but all the way back in you know, 40s, 50s, and 60s, 70s films, I still watch it to this day. Right. I've heard the, the label Star Kid thrown out there versus Monster Kid uh, recently on a, on a blog that I was reading, and, and that kind of describes what your upbringing was with these kinds of movies. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely, even though that kind of sounds like Star Child, and now we're getting into Kiss all of a sudden. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so now I'm imagining Scott wearing the makeup. And the boots. Got to have the boots. But as far as these movies, you watched them growing up. You liked the classic stuff as well from the beginning, or are they kind of a, an acquired taste for you? Oh, I used to watch these, uh, you know, growing up in Indiana, watching WTTV Channel 4 would always, on the weekends, you know, I was pretty much guaranteed to see, in the morning was always uh, the original Star Trek, catching those. And then they would always have uh, films in the afternoon on Saturdays and Sundays. And it was uh, films like Earth versus the Flying Saucers. There was a lot of sci-fi films. And there was also the Godzilla films as well. They would always play a lot of those uh, films. So there's there's the monster head. But that could also be considered sci-fi because of the origin of some of the monsters. So Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, I love it. Every time you go to Disney World, I get to live vicariously through your podcast. And I love that every time you go to Disney World, you go to the Sci-Fi Diner and you talk about that on the show. That is probably one of our most favorite places to go. We've gone there every single time we've ever gone to Disney World together, my wife and I. And basically, from the outside, it looks like a large uh, soundstage. You go in, they have uh, the waiters and waitresses on roller skates. And uh, they guide you back uh, around this wall. And when you come around the, the corner and you look, it, it looks like you're outside at a drive-in theater in the 50s. All of the tables are set up to look like uh, 50s cars. And uh, they park you sitting down in the cars. And each of the cars has basically a front seat, a middle seat, and a back seat. And so you, up to six people can sit in a car they're all pointed at a giant movie screen, and they play a loop that's about 45 to 47 minutes of trailers. I mean, Earth versus the Flying Saucers shows up, not the trailer itself, but some scenes from it, but trailers of, of monster films and sci-fi films, along with commercials from the time, a couple of cartoons, and some newsreel footage of sci-fi things, and some Disney sci-fi related things as well from that time frame. And it's a blast. It's not just Disney centric. I mean, it's, it's oh, no. from that era. I mean, it's it's family friendly because it is in a Disney park. But you know, we've been to Disney World twice, Brenda and I, and I love going to that place. I mean, you know, the menu is a little difficult for Brenda and I because we're vegetarians and gluten free and all that stuff. But you know what? It doesn't matter. I go for the ambiance. Yeah, the, the, you know, your food is your typical drive-in type food, you know, burgers and sandwiches and that kind of stuff. But it is, it's just the whole environment. I mean, the, the waiters and wait staff, they treat you like you are at a drive-in theater. They, they'll, they'll park you when, when they give you your ticket. It's, it's your speeding ticket or your parking ticket, they call it. And one of the things they used to do, which I love, and unfortunately they don't do anymore, is when they would play the Amazing Colossal Man trailer was one of the ones in there. And one point in the trailer, um, the scientists in there carry out a giant syringe, and they're going to inject him in the leg with it. When this the part comes up, usually somebody in the waitstaff would yell, watch out, and the giant would pick up the syringe and then throw it back down, and it literally was like a lawn dart, and it would go right through one of the scientists. And another waitstaff would scream in terror like they were the scientists. And it was always a blast when that would come up. Unfortunately, they don't do that anymore. But that was always one of my favorite moments of, of eating at the Sci-Fi Cafe when that trailer started. Why don't they do that anymore, you think? Unfortunately, I don't know. 
I think the, the you know the wait staff they're running it as a restaurant. They're trying to get as many people in there as fast as they can, so they don't want people sitting around there for the 45, 50 minutes to see the entire loop. Which every time Tracy and I go, we sit there until. Uh, the entire loop plays, and I have an audio file of the entire loop that I listen to just to hear the trailers and the, and the music and everything. So, And you've played that on Disney Indiana before, haven't you? Or yes, at least I parts have. Of it. Between this recording and the time this recording goes out, I'll ask Scott which episode that appeared in, and we'll put a link in the show notes for people to check out. Okay. You go track that down. Is that good with you? Yep. It'll take me a Excellent. while to find it, but I can do that. <laughs> because you've been doing Disney Indiana for how long? Um, this July, uh, July of 2013 will be five years. A seasoned podcaster, a seasoned fan of these types of movies. And when I reached out to Scott to pick one, uh, he picked Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Is this uh, a personal favorite or you wanted to revisit it? Or Yeah, I've always loved this film. I've always been a big fan of Harryhausen's work. And this was uh, one of the first one first films of his that I saw, even though he's not too fond of it if you read his um, autobiography. Really? But, yeah. And, and I, I've not read it. I've just read that this is one of his uh, least favorite films. But I was always a big fan of, of Harryhausen and all his films. And, and you don't know what a kick it was personally for me the very first time I saw the Disney film Monsters, Inc. Because in that film... Uh, the monsters go out at one point, and they're out to eat at a restaurant called Harryhausen's. And yeah. I may have been one of the few people in the theater that got it, but I smiled ear to ear when I saw that. <laughs> now, I watched the movie on Blu-ray uh, to prepare for this recording. It's been a long time since I've seen this one. And on the Blu-ray release, there are some interviews, some you know, behind the scenes making – well, not really making up, kind of like retrospective type pieces. And Harryhausen doesn't seem – too down on the movie you know he talks pretty uh, glowingly of how proud they are of the film i didn't know that about uh, his impression regarding this movie but it is different than most of his other movies too it's stated uh, you know if you go and look in places like imdb it uh, says that he stated in his biography that this is one of his least favorite of his films yeah i i do think it's definitely different because it's not monsters they aren't living organic creatures that are being animated. These are machines that only have very specific movements that they can do. You know what I mean? There's not like muscle underneath and bones that you've got to take into account, a skeletal system and all that. They're machines that you're animating. I mean, they're good. They look great and they move great. But it's definitely different than, say, the Valley of Guanji or, you know, we did Seven uh, Voyages of Sinbad. He's, he's doing the actual flying saucers is what he's animating along with some of the damage that they do uh, near the end of the film. That's that's yeah. his work. I mean, he doesn't even do the aliens inside. Those are actually men in suits. So Yeah, and not even all the destruction is his. You can tell the difference which destruction is his because you see the buildings actually crumble and break. Typically when it's just a building exploding and you don't see like the pieces fall off or whatever, that's stock footage that they picked yes. up and, and added some laser beam effects to. Yeah, and he talks a, about that in the, in the Blu-ray as well. And there's a lot of stock footage of a boat destroyer being destroyed, uh, a B-17 bomber being destroyed. That's all stock footage. A lot of crowd scenes are stock footage. And he talks in this, in this Blu-ray, in this you know, looking back on the movie kind of piece that one of the editor's jobs was to go through all the stock footage and make sure that everybody's costuming matched, that everything was era appropriate. And uh, he gives a lot of respect to the editors for making sure that was done right. Because I can imagine having – let's see, this was made in the 50s, so – there's got to be several years of footage just laying around that they could pick from. It would be real easy to go too far back, you know? The, I thought the stock footage worked really well in this film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. So, you know, I don't want to do like a plot by plot, beat by beat kind of thing. If you want that, I'd recommend check out something like the B-Movie cast where Nick Brown does an amazing plot synopsis. As far as this movie goes, I think it's pretty basic. The title tells you everything what's going to happen in the movie. Earth versus the Flying Saucers, although really, for most of it, it's the Flying Saucers versus Earth. Yes. Uh, Earth takes a licking for most of the movie. And when uh, Richard and I talked about this covering The Day the Earth Stood Still, and we talked about this being an excellent double feature, I would probably play this movie first because it, there's a lot of destruction that happens in this one. And uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still seems to be a little bit more about hope. <laughs> Later films are definitely influenced by this films, especially at the end when we see landmarks being destroyed, which I don't remember a lot of other films 
of this time seeing that it's that seems to be something more that happened uh, like an Independence Day recently when you're seeing you know the White House blow up or whatever. I mean, this one you can actually see buildings that you know, as opposed to when Godzilla is stepping on buildings, they're kind of nondescript buildings. This one, you know, the U.S. Capitol is being destroyed. The Supreme Court is being destroyed. Buildings that are instantly recognizable. Right. And before we get any listeners calling in or writing in, some of the buildings and some of the Godzilla movies are distinct Japanese landmarks, but a lot of them are just kind of whatever they built on the set that day. Right. Let's and, put that out there. <laughs> yeah, that's but they wouldn't be as as distinct to American audiences. Oh, certainly not. Definitely, especially for the time. All right, and we mentioned briefly the relationship between Dr. Russell Marvin played by Hugh Marlowe and Carol Martin played by Joan Taylor. I'd forgotten they were married. Is this something that you had remembered? Was that like a, oh yeah, kind of moment for you or just kind of new going into it? No, I I had remembered uh, cuz they had just gotten married at the beginning of the film. I think there's a comment something along the lines that had been married for 2 hours. I mean, it was literally they just got married. And apparently it was maybe an elopement kind of thing. Yeah, because, because the, the the one thing that I had forgotten, it's been a couple of years since I watched the film, was who Carol's father was, who was ba- uh, Brigadier General John Hanley, who was basically Russell Marvin's boss. <laughs> right. You know, and you could definitely tell this is a movie of the 50s, because if this was a movie of, say, like the 70s onward, if the boss's employee ran off with the boss's daughter and got married and didn't tell them, oh, there'd be drama. Yeah. But this is like the 50s. You're like, oh, that's great. I'm so happy for you. Pretty much. <laughs> you know, and uh, so great that you came back to work because, uh, well, there's work to be done. Uh, you can have a honeymoon later, right? It, it was like they were out in the desert because wherever their um, skyhook. Right was the base was out in the desert. So, you know, it was like they, they hopped in the car one morning. It's like, let's get married, run over to Vegas, got married. And then we're coming back to work that afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, Dr. Martin or Dr. Marvin's trying to get a little action along the way, which I, I, again, I had totally forgotten how affectionate he is in the car ride over. Like he's, he's moving up on her, you know, that she's driving, she's driving, but it, it's not stopping him. Yeah. No, he wants, he wants a little love, you know, I get it. You know? and, and, and I love her line, you're going to start something that you cannot finish. I know. I mean, and that, again, I'm super impressed. Mid-50s and you're getting these, I don't know, allusions to things that might be happening when the camera's pointed at the couple. Yep. I, and I like that a lot. A lot. It had been years since I've seen this movie, so I'm glad you picked it because things like this, I'm just remembering, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, and then that happened. Oh, that's great, too. You know, so it's a fun kind of return to a very familiar friend kind of thing when I got to see the movie again. So they are going back to Skyhook, and he's launching rockets up into the air, and they keep losing track of them, and his new father-in-law knows why. Uh, They were launching the 11th rocket that day, and they had lost contact with the other 10, but it didn't seem to be a big deal, really. It's like, okay, we'll figure out why we can't (laughs) talk to him later. Let's just keep launching (laughs) Let's try again. <laughs> well, the, the the boss, the Brigadier General, had just come back from, I can't remember where it was, but Panama. somewhere. Panama? Was yes. It, okay. They found pieces of it on the ground, and apparently multiple rockets have been, I guess, shot back down to Earth, and they're finding pieces of it all over the place. Some of them are totally missing, probably at the bottom of the ocean. Or in the USSRs was my thought. Yeah. This is still Cold War time. So oh, it's, it's definitely been, the 50s. <laughs> some of it might have fallen there that we don't know about. Right. And because we know the title of the movie, we know exactly what's happened to all these rockets. But uh, The flying course, saucers are shooting them down. Yes. But they, they're, they're pretty much oblivious to it. But uh, you, you forgot, though, that as they're, as they're driving back to, from getting married, they get buzzed by one of the flying saucers. Ah, uh, yeah. See, and I, I, I think it was easy for me to forget that because they are so cold and scientific about the whole thing. There's no freak out, which you would normally see, I suppose, in a movie now. They seem totally like, well, this is interesting. Let's not tell anybody and uh, we'll talk about it later and see if it really happened. Which turned out to be a huge mistake in the film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> because as they're driving, Dr. Marvin is trying to record basically a presentation that he's going to give or some findings that uh, his wife is eventually going to translate later. So he's he's got a recording uh, tape recorder going and gets left on as the aliens are buzzing the, the car out in the desert. 
Right. And and I saw that as soon as she turned off the tape recorder afterwards, I was like, well, that's going to come up. And when she's doing the transcription, yep, there's the sound, probably even louder on the tape than it was earlier so that we could all hear it really well. So, yeah, they've got their their proof that they were buzzed by a flying saucer that, again, I would think that if they saw a flying saucer and they're missing their rockets, hmm, I would put that together a little quicker than I think they did. Yeah, and also I would think that when they got back to the base, they would, like, tell some people that, hey, there's flying saucers around here, and we've got proof. It's not, like, heat stroke or something. (laughs) Right, yeah. (laughs) So they do end up putting some cameras on another rocket that they're going to send up. After we've now lost um, 11 rockets, because they they do uh, shoot up the 11th one, which they lose contact with as well, Budget? What's a budget? Yeah. <laughs> let's let's put some equipment up there that might record what's going on. <laughs> I love the way that science is portrayed in movies like this. It's this the stuff that seems so commonsensical to us is just mind blowing to them. <laughs> yeah, and I do wonder, you know, was that a function of what the culture was at the time? Is it a budgetary thing? Is it keeping the audience in mind? You don't want to hit them over the head with too much science, you know? Yeah. You know, I mean, most of Harryhausen movies, most of them were kind of aimed at a family audience, not, you know, a, a, a strictly adult audience. So you don't want to get too scientific about everything. I don't know. But it is fun to watch. You're right. You know, we see a movie like this, you know, it may as well just be magic. How did this happen? It's science. Okay, moving on. Moving on. Yes. <laughs> it may as well just be magic. And, and a it's lot science. of that happens in this movie. Like when they uh, they come up with a translation device and you know, they start talking to Dr. Marvin. I mean, it, it, how does that work? Well, actually, I thought that was really well done. Okay. Um, we've got the, the aliens, as they're getting ready to launch the 12th rocket now, the aliens actually show up. And, of course... <laughs> We got aliens landing in the middle of a of an Air Force base in the middle of the desert. Diplomacy is the last thing on their minds because they immediately start shooting at the aliens. Right. Don't even try to talk to them, which pretty much is a big mistake because they pretty much destroy all of Skyhook. Except for Dr. Marvin and Carol Marvin, who are down in some bunker somewhere that are now trapped with the power running out. And they've still got their recorder. And so he's recording basically if you find this message, here's our findings type of thing. As the batteries are starting to die, well, then it starts to play the recording that they got of the flying saucer, but it's playing at a slower speed, and we can now understand that the aliens were trying to talk to Russell Marvin. And so you've got that the aliens are actually sort of in a faster time than we are. So when they talk normal, to us, it sounds like it's really sped up. So the they were able to figure out the translation because of the dying batteries in the tape recorder, which I thought that was kind of clever. Yeah, uh, it's not necessarily the most scientific way no. to go. <laughs> it's a happy accident, but, you know, it works. And we do get to communicate with the aliens or the flying saucer inhabitants or whatever they are. I don't think they ever really said exactly where they're from, right? They said that they're from a planet that had been destroyed and they were the last of their species and they were basically looking for another planet that they could take over and call their own. You know, this whole time, during this whole attack sequence and they're trapped in the bunker, I just keep thinking, you know, Dr. Marvin just has to say, hey, wait a minute. You know, five years ago, this happened in Washington, D.C. And I was there. I saw it. And we shot the guy. And then Gort came out and kicked our, <laughs> you know. So, really, this is not a good idea. <laughs> when they do start communicating with the flying saucer inhabitants, these beings from this dead world out there. I felt like the tone of the movie changed a little bit, that we could have gone toward this, it's all a big misunderstanding, let's, you know, kind of work together, kind of peaceful kind of vibe, like the day the Earth stood still. That's not what the aliens wanted. No, not at all. (laughs) Not at all. I mean, it is Earth versus the flying saucers, after all. And when Tracy, she watched the film with me, my wife, and she walked away for some reason at that point, and she didn't, she missed why the aliens were trying to fight Earth. So that that part kind of threw it because at the end we were talking about that, but yeah, they were a smaller force. They didn't have. They never said how many ships they had, but they didn't have a whole lot because they were the last of their breed. But they had vastly superior firepower to us. 
-hmm. So they were hoping that they could come blow up a couple things, prove that they were badasses, and we would just like, okay, you're our leaders now, and that way the earth wouldn't have to be destroyed, they wouldn't have to rebuild buildings or anything, that they would just take over by, you know, we've got the biggest gun in the room, we are the leaders. And that kind of works to their advantage for a little while. I mean, we are kind of trying to figure out what the heck are we going to do against these guys. Now, Marvin and company, they figure it out. They come up with a way to uh, stop the flying saucers. But, you know, before we get to any of that, I mean, we actually get on board one of them, right? Dr. Marvin communicates uh, via shortwave, and the aliens tell him to come meet them out at, I think it was Chesapeake Bay or something like that. And so he comes running out there while his wife and Major... Hewlin? Uh, yeah, Major Hewlin uh, Huglin. He played by Donald Curtis. Yes, who was basically their watchdog, their liaison with the, the military. Dr. Marvin escapes them, and then Carol and Major Hewlin chase after him. And there's a little bit of a chase scene. Then a motorcycle cop joins in. And so the yeah. four of them appear at the coordinates where the spaceship has landed and the aliens basically invite all four of them into the spaceship, and they immediately take off and head into outer space. And this is where the aliens tell their little backstory and basically what they're going to do. Now, did uh, did you recognize the voice of the aliens? Yeah, so we talked about this uh, the other night before we actually recorded. I knew the voice right away just because I've heard him in other things, but I know you know him for even more important, bigger reasons. you want to tell us who it is? The voice of the aliens is played by Disney legend uh, Paul Fries, who was the voice of the ghost host in the Haunted Mansion at, at uh, both Disney World and Disneyland. He's, and he's he, uncredited. If you watch the, uh, the credits in the film, he's not listed as the, the voice of the aliens or anything. But I always thought it's cool that you know, there's a, somebody with some strong Disney ties in this film. Yeah, he had done a lot of sci-fi and horror kind of monster work. You know, all the way up through the 70s, really, even. He did things like the Milpitas Monster and things like that. So, you know, it's kind of cool to see this guy that I know, Di you know Scott loves from Disney, and I love him from The Haunted Mansion, doing things in these movies that I absolutely love. Yeah. So it's, it's cool to hear him. Now, he also did the opening narration, didn't he? Yes, he did the, the opening narration as well. Really cool to hear his voice there. I'm, I'm trying to remember if I've actually ever seen him on screen doing voiceovers, but at the parks is where you hear him the most. Not only is he in the Haunted Mansion, but he's in the Pirates of the Caribbean. So two of the biggest attractions at the Disney parks, you're, you're going to hear Mr. Freeze. A lot of other people might recognize him as the the voice of uh, Boris Badenoff as well from the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Oh, did he do that? Yeah. Oh, nice. He's done quite a bit of work. So even though he's done villainous roles like that, or he's appeared as the, the appeared in air quotes as the voice of the alien in this movie, I can't help but hear his voice and just feel comforted. There's something very comforting about his voice, even though he's like the ghost host in the haunted mansion. I don't know what it is, but he just makes me feel like I'm getting tucked in. So to hear him as an alien delivering these, these lines describing this horrible thing that's happened to these people and what's going to happen. It's kind of a, a disconnect for me. It's, I don't know. It's terrifying almost. You know, this this happy guy that I just imagine is being happy all the time for some reason or other is the voice of the aliens that are going around destroying the world. And and basically, they they want the Earth. They they want to rule the humans, but they don't want to destroy them because they don't. Basically, they want to keep the infrastructure. Right, but like all the important buildings and all that, we're going to take them out. You know, there will be destruction rained upon you until you accept us as our as your alien overlords. Yes. yes. I mean, they, they even show film. Well, I don't even know if it's it's film. There, that might have actually been happening in real time when they have the four of our characters in there. They show them destroying a battleship with, with basically one shot from their, their ray gun at the bottom of one of their ships. They give Dr. Marvin the coordinates of where that ship went down. So he can go back to his superiors and as proof, you know, the aliens destroyed this ship. Now they want all the world leaders to come to Washington to basically uh, accept terms of surrender. And not everybody gets off that flying saucer. No, because we also find out that uh, during the Skyhook invasion, they um, capture Carol's dad. 
and they have the ability to scan your brain and learn every little detail about you and offload it to a computer. So the, the dad shows back up, but he's pretty much blank mind. He's just the, the brain's controlling the living, but there's no there's no one home. And the motorcycle cop, he's, he's heard enough of all this, and he actually starts shooting. He pulls his gun and starts shooting, and they immediately start the process on him. And it was kind of a neat uh, visual effect of how they do that because they have this giant, what looks like a crystal rose that comes down out of the ceiling, which is their way they can communicate with the humans. But it can also shoot out this ray that will envelop the head of somebody. And then as you're, as the person's there, it kind of slowly dissolved the outside skin. You could actually see the brain. And I thought that was, you know, for a, a 50s film, that was really well done. Yeah, no, I thought it was pretty cool too. And I, I felt like some of the visual effects, they run hot and cold for me. Things like that, really liked. The superimposed laser beams, thought it looked a little silly. Yeah. But uh, this uh, sequence inside the flying saucer actually is one of my favorite sequences in the entire movie. And I think it really gave Joan Taylor an opportunity to really perform. I felt Carol Marvin as uh, Dr. Marvin's wife, somebody who's been in the world of science and military order and all that her entire life. She's very detached when a lot of things start happening. She doesn't show a lot of emotion because there's work to be done. You just don't in a military family, I imagine, growing up. And now you're in the world of science. So, you know, you just you put your head down and get your work done. You deal with your emotions later. But I felt like Joan Taylor's performance in this sequence, I, did, I really liked. I felt like there was a lot going on there, which was, again, something I didn't expect from a movie called Earth versus the Flying Saucers from the 50s. And I think that goes to uh, the script, you know, is a testament to the script and the direction and, and the performances. They didn't just cast a bunch of, you know, actors who, who didn't know what they were doing. They cast people who could really perform. Well, I, I agree. I thought she was excellent in that film. When she first sees her dad in that state, you really feel for her the way that her emotions are, are coming out. It's... It's kind of um, you know a, a sucker punch to the gut when you first see him, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the reaction is really really well, very very well done. There's there's a lot about this movie that's really well done on the non technical front. Meaning, I mean, let's be honest, we all look at the movie first for the flying saucers, but there's still a lot happening beneath the flying saucers that makes this movie a joy to watch. I thought Hugh Marlowe was great. We talked about Joan Taylor in this particular scene. The writing I found to be really interesting. You know, it's, I, I just want to talk about the writing real quick. Uh, Kurt Siodmak came up with the story uh, based on a book called Flying Saucers from Outer Space. The screenplay was written by George Worthing Yates and Bernard Gordon. Now, Bernard Gordon's name was not actually on the original credits of the film. And I don't know what version of the movie you watched, which release. Uh, the Blu-ray that I watched, his name has been restored to the opening credits. Originally, he was credited as Raymond T. Marcus, and that was because Bernard Gordon was blacklisted. Yeah, that's the version I saw. I, d I don't have the Blu-ray. He was listed as Raymond T. Marcus. Yeah, the Blu-ray has restored his name, which I can't, apparently it was a big deal. The Writers Guild you know, had to be involved in that process as well. And there's a lot of movies, according to another special feature on this disc, that Gordon was involved with. They've been going through slowly over the years and restoring his proper credit, which, I mean, it's the 50s, you know. Mm -hmm. The blacklist was not was not a good thing, ladies and gentlemen. I think that's pretty much all we really need to say about that. So, well, I'm glad uh, that they're taking the time to actually restore his name so we, we know who who did the, this, this fine work. Agreed. Agreed. And you know what? I am going to say something else, actually, because something else that was brought up in this Blu-ray special feature is that it's real easy for us to, as film fans, especially film fans of this era, to look and see who was a blacklisted and talk about how wronged they were and, you know, try to right the wrongs now. But one thing that was brought up, and just if I can get serious for a second, we see that because they were the most visible, you know, people watched movies, so we saw their names, we saw their faces, but there were other people in other lines of business that were also, well, they had their lives ruined because of the blacklisting that weren't public figures or in front of the, of the public's eye all the time. You know, lawyers and architects and, you know, other people like that, other industries that were also affected. And just something to keep in mind, I guess, when you start thinking about the blacklist, it wasn't just movies. It was a big deal for a lot of people. 
Well, and there was also a lot of people that were in the movie industry, but they weren't people that you know. They weren't people in front of the camera, people that worked carpentry in the theaters or, or in the movie studios, building things that were on the blacklist as well, and their lives got ruined. And mm-hmm. you know, they're they're not getting the recognition that they, you know, like uh, Bernard Gordon is getting because we don't know right. who these people were, or they just they're gone. Right. Well, on that happy note, can we talk about <laughs> blowing stuff up? <laughs> sure. What do you want to blow up? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not what I want to blow up, but apparently the flying saucers want to take out Washington, D.C. <laughs> well, once we get to D.C., man, we got to start blowing stuff up. I guess that's what you do if you're an out-of-town alien visiting. Well, <laughs> before we get to that, we, we got to say that um, this is the one part of the film that has always been a struggle for me to understand why. But the aliens basically give the humans 56 days to comply. I don't understand why, why they gave them so much time. That, that is quite a bit of time to, yeah. Which gave, you know, our, our super scientist time to spring into action and develop a defense against them. I mean, they, they were. 56 days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, they, they actually show them, not the aliens, but, you know, from the desk of the chief of staff. 56 and they encircled it several times <laughs> right yeah that was an odd number i wonder which i also thought was hilarious if there was somebody who is the ch- you know the chief of staff at that level they actually have a pad of paper that says from the office of the chief of staff <laughs> <laughs> now i want to get some paperwork some stationery that just says from the office of the chief of staff of monster kid radio <laughs> but you know that gives them plenty of time you know in dr marvin it's like, I gleaned some knowledge about being in the ship, and I think I've got a way that we can do a defense against them. And basically coming up with a, a, a sonic-type gun that will disrupt this, the uh, flying saucers. Which I thought was an interesting choice on the behalf of the filmmakers and the storytellers, because it meant we didn't have to draw any more laser beams in for the good guys to use. Yep. Which... Because I didn't like the laser beams for the bad guys to use, I'm glad. <laughs> Plus, it's a black and white movie, so your color options are limited in terms of you know what color you're going to make the good guy laser beams versus the bad. It's not like Star Wars, where all the bad guy lightsabers are red, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're a little limited. But speaking of color, and I don't know if maybe I'm skipping too far ahead, I watched this movie in color this time. The Blu-ray has the option to watch either. Hmm. Legend Films did the restoration, and Harryhausen was involved and loves it. Uh, apparently, the, he's a supporter of Legend Films. Uh, they've done some colorization. You know, Scott, you're a fan of, of uh, Mystery Science Theater and all things Rift Tracks. Mm-hmm. The Plan 9 from Outer Space version that they do live yep. is colorized it's by colorized. Legend Films. They've also colorized uh, Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, is, is that Legend Films as well? Yes, it is. Because the, there's, there's a DVD that you can get from Legend that uh, has the black and white, the color... And the color version uh, with commentary by Michael Nelson, Michael J. Oh, okay. Nelson. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to say something that the Derek of 15, 20 years ago would be aghast at hearing me say. I thought it was well done. I've not been a fan of colorizing movies just for the sake of colorizing movies. I, I understand you want to colorize them to give them maybe some new life and get some kids to watch them, but. I, I think, especially in the case of movies like, say, Citizen Kane, which Harryhausen brings up, you can't colorize that movie and get away with it. And so much of the movie is is built on the way the black and white cinematography works. You know, I used to give my mother a hard time because she loves the Christmas movie A Miracle on 34th Street, but she wants it in color. And that just doesn't seem right to me. I don't have a problem with colorizing movies on one condition. If they're going to release it, they release it with the black and white version as well. And give me the choice if I want to watch it in the original black and white. Right, right. And uh, I, I think I've told this story on Mail Order Zombie over the years. There is a, a local video store when I was growing up, I was able to start renting videos on my own that had a colorized version of Night of the Living Dead. But it was from some small studio that you know, was just trying to make a buck. And they did not take into consideration that the blood in Night of the Living Dead was chocolate syrup. So all the blood was brown and it looked ridiculous in this colorized version because somebody didn't pay attention and, and remember, oh, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> it's like they just set it up on their computer, went to bed, you know, came back the next day. Oh, it's done rendering. Let's move on. 
you know? So with somebody like Legend Films, who's really paying attention to what they're doing and working with people like Harryhausen, you know, the original filmmaker in this case, really liked what they did here. And the Blu-ray allows you to watch it either way. You, if you hit the angle button on your remote control, you can switch between versions as the movie's going. Hmm. So yeah, you don't I, don't, have, I don't have the yeah. Blu-ray. That that might be interesting. I would really recommend it. I thought it looked good. It isn't as restored as it probably could be for a Blu-ray. You know, it still looks like a movie that's just been upconverted. But the colorization was nice. I kind of liked it. So what color was the uh, the alien laser beams? Oh, it's just like this bright white kind of. It wasn't anything special. But all the other colors, I mean, everybody seemed to be the right color. All the costumes seemed to be right. And they apparently have some technology where they're able to do some sort of – they didn't. They said it wasn't polygons and it wasn't edge tracking. It was something else. And then they started talking science and, well. <laughs> science. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we did it because it was science. Okay. We yeah. <laughs> I've seen their work because I've seen the, the colorized uh, Plan 9 uh, before. And it, it does. That looks pretty good, too. I mean, as good as Plan 9 can look. <laughs> well, you get to see a color Bella Lugosi for a few minutes in that. So that's always good. Yes. And a colored... <laughs> Uh, color Bella Lugosi's um, chiropractor. Well, yeah. Well, that was Ed Woods, wasn't it? Ed Woods' chiropractor. I thought it was it was actually Bella's, but I don't. Or it's somebody. Well, somebody. Color color vampira. There you go. There you go. That that's the draw. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, no, it was really interesting to see it in color and to see be able to go back and forth uh, for this, and it makes me really want to go and check out their other work that they've done with Harryhausen because they've done like three or four of his movies. Hmm. You know, I've uh, like I said, I watched uh, just the standard black and white version. Yeah, I want to see his Emir in color. And they showed a couple clips in one of the behind the scenes or the making of or whatever uh, special features. It looks cool. I may have to uh, track down the Blu-ray then. Yeah, I got mine through Netflix, so it's out there. All right, so yeah, we're blowing stuff up and, uh, you know, the movie just kind of becomes uh, – race to see who blows each other up first i guess right i mean there's not a lot of plot once the the explosions start happening yeah the aliens finally decide that um we're not going to have this big conference where the usa is just gonna or the world's just gonna bow down before them it's a trap <laughs> so they they start their attack on on washington dc at the same time that uh dr marvin and his team has is come back with trucks and trucks and trucks of sonic guns i I don't know how many because we see several of them being destroyed. But there must yeah, be I keep thinking. Well, now they only have two left, but then we go to the next shot. And there's three more coming. <laughs> so they must have had a whole fleet of these things. They had 56 days to make them. So. True. <laughs> but the, the the sonic guns they don't actually blow up the the flying saucers. It basically messes up with their stability and they're able to uh, their ability to fly because it causes them to crash so we get some crashing uh, Harryhausen work of the of these flying saucers and one of the first crashes is actually one of my favorite crashes and it's the one that crashes into the Potomac River because they go back right after it crashes and you see a couple of the the characters run over there and I don't know if, if you heard this but the water is boiling yeah, and you can kind of see it, too. Yes. <laughs> like along the edge of where the, the flying saucer is in the water. It's not just it's still water. It's kind of churning a little bit. Yeah, which I thought was, I mean, that was nice a touch. A, that was a nice touch. <laughs> yeah. Because you could hear it boiling, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I really liked that. And, you know, when we do see things getting blown up, it's typically, you know, the laser beams from the, the flying saucers or if the flying saucer crash lands. Unfortunately, too many of the flying saucers would crash land off screen for what we're seeing. I wanted to see it actually hit the ground. Yeah, there's the one that goes down an alley on the, yeah. in the streets and you just, uh, it goes by and now you can't see anything. And then you hear the crash and then a bunch of smoke and parts come flying out. And my my thought on that is that it was probably because they didn't want to break one of the models. Yeah, which is fine, you know. But you you see the you know, the Washington Monument get taken out, uh, the Supreme Court, the Capitol Building, the Union Station train station in Washington D.C. gets destroyed. Definitely, you know, films later films like Independence Day are are, are strongly influenced by this. I, I'm thinking, you know, seeing these landmarks being destroyed. <laughs> 
the last Saturday night to celebrate the one-year anniversary of Jeff owning the Joy Cinema. He brought in Plan 9 from Outer Space. It was a colorized version from Passmore Labs in 3D. The real 3D glasses were passed out. Tickets were a dollar. Popcorn, root beer, friends, Bella Lugosi on the big screen in color. You know, it was a lot of fun. Now, when we had Scott on the show as part of the Classic 5 segment last week, he mentioned that Plan 9 from Outer Space is his favorite Ed Wood movie. And you know what? I think I agree with him. I love Plan 9 from Outer Space. I like Bride of the Monster too, but I love Plan 9 quite a bit. It may be the most iconic of all the Ed Wood films because it's got the most Ed Wood-isms in it. Stock footage, Bella Lugosi, the rough performances, one-take scenes. It's even got Vampira in it for crying out loud, which, you know, wasn't normally in it. Well, it doesn't matter. It's a fun movie. And I'm sure you guys are familiar with Plan 9 from Outer Space, so I don't need to talk too much about the story. What I do want to talk about is the 3D conversion. Now, we live in a day and age when modern movies, even if they're not shot in 3D, a lot of times they're released in 3D. They're 3Dized in post. And a lot of times it really doesn't work. It pretty much shows that it wasn't really intended to be done that way. And obviously Plan 9 from Outer Space wasn't intended to be a 3D film. However, the 3D conversion of this particular print I actually really liked. Now, first of all, I was a little concerned because I wasn't able to get a seat dead center in the theater. A lot of times with 3D movies, you want to be dead center in the theater for it to work. I didn't have to. I was actually kind of sitting in the back to the right a little bit. It still worked just fine. It also worked just fine despite the fact that I wear glasses. When it's real 3D glasses slipped on top of my regular glasses and I could still get the effect. The effect was subtle. Obviously, this movie wasn't originally designed to do a lot of the things coming at the camera, coming at your face kind of effects. And, and that's fine. I mean, I think if we'd seen that in this film, this 3D conversion would have stood out a little bit as being clunky and unnatural. But it was subtle. In fact, it was so subtle that a lot of times if I slipped my glasses off, which I did because I wanted to go back to the concession stand because I forgot to pick up something about 20 minutes into the movie, and I came back to get my seat. I was walking around without my glasses on. I could still read the picture just fine. I could see it just fine. It wasn't blurry, and I think that's because the 3D effects weren't so deep and so extreme that it stood out. It just made for a fun, enjoyable movie. On top of that, Jeff went out of his way to ask the audience to not turn this into amateur hour for a lot of people who love Mystery Science Theater 3000. Now, I know there are two schools of thought when it comes to Mystery Science Theater 3000. One is that the riffing celebrates the movie. The other is that the riffing detracts or maybe even insults the movie a little bit. And I go back and forth. I'll be completely honest with you. I've watched some riff tracks. I've watched some cinematic Titanic. I used to watch Mystery Science Theater 3000 back in the day. And those guys, they knew what they were doing. They spent weeks writing this stuff. A lot of times when you go to see a movie, especially a movie from the 40s or 50s, you'll get somebody in the audience who thinks they're as funny as Mike, who thinks they're as funny as Joel, or any of the others, and a lot of times they're not. And it really kind of takes away from the experience. It is a little disrespectful, not necessarily of the movie, but of the audience that had paid to see the movie. And while I only did pay a dollar, still, I paid to see the movie. And I'm really glad that Jeff went out of his way to say, hey, you know what, guys? Let's just enjoy the movie for what it is. Let's not turn this into, you know, open mic night here in the theater. Apparently, the previous Friday night, there were some issues and some complaints about the amount of people making noise and joking and that sort of thing. The thing about Plan 9 from Outer Space, yes, there's a lot of incompetence here. You can definitely see the strings hanging the flying saucers. The acting, not so good, especially once you're up in the flying saucer, but... There are some things that kind of make it feel like a regular science fiction movie from the 50s. I think Plan 9 and Bride of the Monster are probably Ed Wood's most competently made films. If you're grading on a bell curve. And because of that, you can enjoy the movie for what it is. But there are some moments where you are just going to laugh out loud. Because really? Tor Johnson's dialogue? The, I'm out there, and I'm in here, and you'll be in here line of dialogue between the man and wife. The special effects and... You know, obviously the Bella Lugosi stand-in, they are quite laughable. And that did get a laugh out of the crowd straight without somebody making some jokes. And it was really nice, really respectful. And I really appreciate the audience at the Joy Cinema who treated everybody with respect and allowed them to enjoy the movie and just laugh along and have fun. This was a fun experience. Now, that's not to say that I've not enjoyed Plan 9 from Outer Space. Rift tracks, I have. 
but it was also nice to see it without that. And kudos to Jeff at the Joy Cinema. Kudos to the audience at Joy Cinema. And kudos to you guys for listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Also, kudos to Scott Morris for joining me this week. We'll be back with part two of our conversation here in a couple of days. And between now and then, I'll be coming back to the Joy Cinema for Weird Wednesday for a showing of EGA. Looking forward to that. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0, unported license. 